Welcome to episode 111 of Techspansive Podcast. I'm Sean Dubervac with Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, uh, we're going to start with a lot of news coming out of Apple. As you recall, last month, they announced plans to uh, introduce some new technology to help protect children from predators. And uh, they uh, were going to implement a, a CSAM which is the uh, child sexual abuse material database to scan your photos uh, on your device as well as on your uh, iCloud. They announced this week that they will be delaying that while they uh, fine tune it. Obviously, there there was a lot of criticism when that was announced. We talked about that in a previous episode of the podcast. And uh, they want to make sure it's, uh, I, I think, f- foolproof that there aren't any... Um, things that they're overlooking before they release this. Yeah, this is about the second or third step back uh, that Apple has uh, made regarding this uh, scanning of uh, child sexual abuse material on on the iPhone. Uh, As we had discussed previously, a lot of the concern is around the slippery slope argument. Uh, If Apple can scan for this kind of uh, objectionable material, uh, what other kinds of things might they scan for or potentially be forced to scan for by uh, other types of governments, uh, even though Apple has held firm that this is a, an exception, you know, essentially to, to the rule, uh, and they would not be scanning for uh, other types of, uh, of material. Uh, however, they had already agreed to bring in some independent oversight to ensure that the program stays uh, within those uh, those narrow confines. Uh, it just seems to be, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a moment, Sean. Uh, all uh, a series of um, a series of, of steps back or reevaluations that uh, we've seen out of Apple uh, in in the past month in response to. To criticism. I mean, this one's a little different because it doesn't really concern their business practices uh, as uh, some of the other ones have. But it, it does certainly um, speak to the level of control, let's say, uh, that uh, that they have over the platform. Yeah, I, th- I think it also probably surprised Apple how much criticism they mm. received on this because they they made the announcement with a lot of key partners in place that that are active in this space. And uh, so it looked like they had everything lined up well, and then they got a surprising amount of pushback from companies that that's from organizations that saw this as an abuse of, you know, of Apple's control over that environment. And because Apple for so long has touted that, you know what what happens on Apple stays on Apple, as their uh, cheeky CES advertisement stated, and and really focused on the security and privacy of Apple. And we we've, we've seen some you know historic court cases around this as well, where Apple has gone to great lengths to protect the content on the, the iPhone and in the Apple ecosystem. And then here they're uh, they're announcing that they're going to go through it with a a relatively fine tooth comb to make sure none of this objectionable material is is on any of these devices or stored on the cloud. So uh, I think they were probably a little surprised with the uh, 
the pushback and they're just going to make sure that uh, they're taking in all of that input before they uh, release it. And I, I think, you know, I wonder if this will adjust the way Apple approaches these type of announcements moving forward, if they really will try to pull in a, a broader audience so that it isn't a surprise to the market when these type of features get get uh, announced. And I think you make a really good point, Ross, that it it does look like, uh, you know, that there are a lot of people sitting on the sidelines ready to just jump in anytime Apple makes any type of announcement that looks like they're using their control over the, the environment in a, in a way that might not be what users want. So a few thoughts on that. I agree with you that I it seems as if they were surprised. And yet from the description that, that you give, you know, as you aptly uh, describe their history of uh, valuing privacy and, and refusing to, uh, to give in to law enforcement requests to scan the contents of phones, it makes it that much more surprising uh, that, that they would be surprised. And uh, uh, I, I think probably speaks to uh, or reinforces their perspective uh, that this really is a, a, an exception. Uh, and as for your thought that they may uh, become more cautious about these kinds of these kinds of um, decisions in the future, I'd be inclined to agree because it's kind of a, a revenue neutral um, kind of policy. It's a, it's a social policy. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think from kind of a, a public PR perception, uh, it, it was a, um, you know, it was viewed as, as a, a positive uh, move or they thought it would be viewed as a positive move to become more, uh, more aggressive here and trying to ferret out, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, this terrible uh, behavior. Uh, but, you know, if, if it turns out that this is not the right approach, that they're convinced to, to, uh, to, to um, confine it uh, to iCloud content, you know, stuff that people have backed up. You know, they're, they're really not much worse off uh, at, at the end of the day, and they, they've still made progress on what I think everyone would agree is a laudable goal. Uh, so uh, even though it looks like they're taking some black eyes here, uh, I think ultimately they're going to come out uh, ahead on this. Yeah, and this is a good thing for them to do. And it, and it is apparent when you look at the numbers that they probably haven't been doing enough. Mm. Uh, Facebook reported over 20 million cases of, of child sexual abuse material last year. Apple reported under 300 cases. So the the difference that exists between those two companies suggests that Apple probably isn't doing enough that, that, you know, if it's happening 20 million times on Facebook, it's probably happening on, on Apple devices, especially because Apple has touted the security and the privacy uh, so strongly in the past. And probably you can imagine that, uh, that there are some people who are taking advantage of that and, and using that uh, to, to their advantage. So, I think it is a good move from Apple and they are just making sure that uh, they're incorporating all of the feedback that they're getting, all the input that they're getting from uh, from all of these outside organizations before they press forward. 
I do think one of the great challenges that Apple has is balancing a global platform, essentially. You, you've got all of these countries with different rules. And that was the slippery slope argument. What happens if Saudi Arabia says, we want you to also scan for any, uh, you know, any other material that they find objectionable that, uh, you know, the rest of the world may not find objectionable. So uh, there's, you know, the risk that some countries will take advantage of this to enforce their own social, uh, you know, direction and their yeah, the, the one, social agenda. The, the one that came up a lot was uh, China uh, requesting images of Hong Kong, you know, protest signs yeah. or, or something like that. So, yeah. 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 So I think that, you know, the, the risk is here, I think, and the, the great struggle that Apple and really all of these large tech companies have moving forward is that they've got to manage a, a global platform when countries have a lot of very different uh, rules and and different things that they want. Another announcement we saw this week from Apple is that they have agreed to allow apps like Netflix and, and Spotify to sign up, to offer a, a web link for signups. Where in the past, if you downloaded the, the app, you didn't have the ability, if you were the, the app developer, to push people to the web to sign up for an, uh, an account. If they could sign up through the app, then they were signing up through the Apple ecosystem where they would then have to, the, the app developer, of course, would have to pay Apple 30% of, of the uh, charge for that service. Uh, when you can also sign up for the service outside of the, the app, and now they're allowed to point them in that direction. And, and that was a settlement based upon um, the in lawsuits that they were facing in Japan. And so you, I think you see these type of things happening more frequently where uh, a, a uh, you know, an organization, it brings a lawsuit in one country and then Apple or others are forced to, uh, to uh, resolve that lawsuit and they end up pushing out whatever that was across the entire platform, making it a, a global move. So I think that's, something that Apple is going to be facing and other tech companies will be facing in months to come. Yeah, this, uh, you know, this comes, of course, on the heels of another concession that developers would be able to contact users of their apps directly um, via email. Uh, but, and, and there, you know, there's an article in The Verge about how this isn't really going to have much of an adverse impact on Apple's uh, revenue. So, of course, those are, uh, as we just mentioned, the uh, easier concessions to make. Uh, but uh, I, I still tend to view this as a bigger deal than uh, the, uh, the developer communication uh, concession, in part because it's actually a change that developers are able to make within the app. Uh, so, um, you know, it may, it may not have a, a huge impact on Apple today because of the far outsized share of revenue that's uh, driven from game apps as opposed to movie subscription apps or music subscription apps, uh, which are in many cases kind of, you know, mature categories. We've got, you know, a, a handful of, um, uh, of, of high market share, uh, high you know high concentration 
in a lot of those, uh, in a number of those categories. But <clears throat> uh, I, I think, you know, to, again, a point that we were talking about last week, uh, this idea of what apps have been held back uh, because they haven't been able to effectively monetize uh, on the app store because of restrictions, I think this opens the door uh, for uh, you know new kinds of offerings that uh, were not viable uh, with uh, Apple taking a cut of the subscription and no way to direct users to sign up uh, outside of the app. And the other thing is that you know if I'm Spotify, uh, you know Spotify has uh, said, look, this isn't enough. You know we really uh, need a lot more freedom on the platform. But it does allow them to compete uh, a bit more effectively uh, with with Apple's homegrown services, uh, gives these uh, content uh, offerings more of a level playing field with uh, with Apple's own offerings. Um, And then finally, Sean, to your point about the growing or the mounting international pressure, uh, this is, you know, even though I think it's more significant than the developer communication concession, uh, it is still relatively uh, small potatoes compared to some of the issues that Apple is facing in other countries, uh, such as in uh, South Korea uh, and India, uh, where the the idea of app exclusivity, app store exclusivity, uh, is uh, and, and, and the notion of being required to use uh, an, an in-app payment system uh, that's uh, controlled by Apple. Uh, is uh, is coming under a lot more scrutiny, and and those those kinds of issues would have far more profound uh, implications uh, potentially on on Apple's App Store revenue. In other Apple news, we saw that there are uh, rumors circulating this week that the Apple's uh, introduction of AR VR headset will require it to be connected to other Apple devices like an iPhone, per- perhaps a tablet or a Mac uh, might work as well, but, um, and that much of the functionality will be offloaded to the iPhone or to that other Apple device. Uh, I'm not so surprised by this. I think there was a, a little bit of surprise in the marketplace by this, but uh, the capabilities of the iPhone are so incredible that uh, it makes sense that you would try to offload some of the, the functionality to the iPhone and allow that to be the, the uh, you know, horsepower for the device. And it should make the, the device lighter. It probably improves other capabilities of the device, maybe battery life, you know, um, other things like that. So, I think there's some really interesting use case scenarios that can come out of it. Also, if it's connected to your mobile phone, you can imagine taking calls while you're in the the VR headset. So I think there's some interesting uh, applications there. Yeah, absolutely. This is very much uh, in line with some of the latest thinking that we're seeing around AR, VR headsets. Uh, people want lighter, less obtrusive, less conspicuous uh, glasses, uh, and offloading a lot of the intelligence and connectivity uh, to a smartphone uh, helps uh, helps enable that. Great example of a, of a recent uh, entrant that does this is the Lenovo uh, Think Reality A3 uh, glasses, which uh, connect 
Well, they can connect to a PC, uh, in which case they just provide uh, essentially multiple monitors, or they can connect to a certain model of a Motorola phone. Uh, Lenovo, of course, uh, owns Motorola, so it could do the, uh, the integration there. In which case you can do, you know, a lot of the more traditional uh, AR types of uh, things like remote assistance or visualizing models in front of you, walk around them. I actually had a chance to, uh, to experience these glasses uh, about, a, about a week ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're a relatively inexpensive offering, at least compared to something like, uh, like the HoloLens, uh, and they are certainly much lighter uh, and so um, uh, there, there's another example, there, there's another advantage, rather, uh, which is not as obvious, uh, which is that uh, if you have a headset on, uh, you need to rely on some kind of controller or hand uh, finger detection in order to do any kind of input. Whereas if, you're, uh, if you have a phone in front of you, you can use the familiar phone keyboard uh, and uh, controls uh, to, to do uh, various kinds of input. It's much more uh, comfortable and efficient uh, than, uh, than doing it within a headset. So, so all of this lines up, and uh, I would say one area where uh, there seems to be some differentiation in Apple's approach uh, is, uh, is in going with a wireless connection, at least according to reports. Uh, whereas today, uh, that uh, that Lenovo headset that I mentioned uh, relies on a, a cable connection, uh, which is somewhat less, um, uh, you know, less does less to embody the the freedom of uh, of augmented reality. But uh, but in speaking to companies uh, working on this technology, Qualcomm has been a um, you know, a major uh, backer of, of this approach. Uh, they provide the, uh, the chipset behind that uh, Lenovo headset. Uh, they, um, you know, they're, they're very keen uh, on, uh, on this approach and uh, believe that Wi-Fi will have more than enough uh, bandwidth, particularly uh, as we migrate to, to Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E uh, to, uh, to handle the communication uh, between the the headset and the uh, and the smartphone, yeah, I think that will be uh, key for this. Is that uh, it be wireless, wirelessly connected between the the you know the iPhone and the headset. And then to your point, I think you make a great one, Ross. That the ability to then use the iPhone as a controller inside of the virtual environment is really interesting. And you obviously have already accelerometers and gyroscopes in the iPhone, and so being able to to use it in three-dimensional space is already there. So I think that uh, offers some interesting opportunities to help navigate and interact with, with things that you might be doing in the, the virtual space. Uh, still probably a lot more rumors to break on this type of device because obviously it isn't in the market yet and Apple has uh, not really been uh, too transparent about when it will come to market. And so, uh, you know, maybe next year, maybe the year after, but we'll we'll see more coming here for sure. In other device announcements this week, we saw that Amazon is also launching a new device. It will be a uh, Alexa television that won't be connected to a, a major television manufacturer. They're going to essentially uh, white label it 
and it will be an Alexa TV. Uh, this is a direction I would argue that Amazon has gone in, in a, a other categories. This is essentially the Amazon Basics uh, product, but this will be um, a step up from cables and connectors and other things that they've made and will be a, a full-blown television running Alexa as its, uh, presumably as its operating system and not connecting to a operating system of another major TV manufacturer. Yeah. And I, you know, we've spoken on the podcast, uh, quite a bit about the, uh, suddenly, well, maybe not so suddenly, but you know, how within the past year, uh, a lot of competition has uh, been heating up around Roku, uh, because of the advertising revenue that, uh, it has been able to generate, uh, through its, uh, its licensing, uh, program. Uh, and we've talked about how Samsung and Google TV have been, uh, stepping up, uh, those efforts and, uh, Amazon has, uh, you know, been not, not quite as, uh, as much in the thick of those, uh, discussions. Uh, as you mentioned, Sean, they have done some licensing deals. Uh, they had an Alexa TV through a brand called, uh, Element, uh, you know, certainly for a while. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is also an Apple connection, uh, regarding our last story because for years and years, it was rumored that, uh, uh, Apple would uh, come out with its own television uh, and never did uh, sticking to the set-top box approach, although they have begun integrating uh, Apple TV Plus into uh, other other companies' uh, TV sets and other competitive set-top boxes. So, uh, you know, to me, this, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, you know, particularly at, at the smaller sizes, uh, and I and I use that term, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in in uh, in, in a, a bit of an odd sense, given the how how large TVs have become. Uh, TVs have become, you know, so inexpensive, uh, and uh, Amazon, of course, is in a better position than just about anyone uh, to uh, to move uh, volumes of those uh, televisions. So so why not? You know, uh, and, um, you know, I, I think we, we've seen how uh, also how the sets have become uh, so much less brand uh, dependent uh, for a large segment of, of the market. Uh, that said, you know, Amazon has uh, somewhat established itself as an AV brand, uh, both through the many uh, Echo speakers that uh, it, it has sold, um, enabling things like multi-room audio, uh, as well as the the Fire TV boxes. So, uh, you know, we've also seen more of this um, uh, first-party branding from Roku, not on a television yet, but certainly in audio, uh, where they have done their own soundbars and rear speakers and subwoofers and you know, that's just been been part of a big push for them. So uh, it shows how these uh, OS, uh, TV OS companies are uh, just becoming a lot more aggressive uh, in terms of the devices as well. I completely agree with that, Ross. I think it highlights the great ambitions that Amazon has for Alexa, that they're rolling it out everywhere. Uh, obviously, they've got things like Amazon, uh, you know, custom Amazon Alexa and, uh, that they're building into the vehicle, allowing 
auto OEMs to essentially white label Alexa to help uh, facilitate voice transactions in the vehicle. So they're making big pushes there. And I think they, they recognize the value of the TV as a central device in the home ecosystem. And that plays a, a key role to how users are interacting with their environment inside of the home. I think they also see the announcements that have been made in the last year uh, with a, a lot of game consoles going virtual and being embedded directly into the, the TV. LG had announcements earlier in the year where they were going to build uh, NVIDIA's GeForce Now and uh, obviously Stadia in directly into the, uh, you know, into the TV. And so Amazon also has gaming ambitions with Luma and I could see them wanting to embed that directly into the TV as well. So I think it highlights their uh, strong ambitions for Alexa to be full encompassing and in a lot of different devices. And also, again, how they see the TV being central to uh, the, the experience inside the home. Well, Ross, that's probably a great place to end this week's episode of TechSpansive. Thanks for joining for episode 111. Again, I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>